1: Find out more by going to www.intelligentsquared.com forward slash partnerships.
2: Hi everyone, Connor Boyle here. Just a reminder, you can take your Intelligence Squared experience deeper with Intelligence Squared Premium. You'll get an ad-free feed, one early episode per week, two bonus episodes per month, discounts on Intelligence Squared Plus, priority access to our live in-person events, and access to our premium monthly newsletter. Sign up at iq2premium.supercast.com. Thanks for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. Today on the podcast, we're going behind the scenes of some of the BBC's most unforgettable interviews. Sam McAllister is the BAFTA-nominated interview producer who's worked on BBC's flagship news programme, Newsnight, from 2010 to 2021. She's also the producer who secured the infamous Newsnight interview with Prince Andrew. In conversation with Petri Hoskin, Sam dives into her experience with power, persuasion, high stakes, and celebrity. Here's Petri with more. Hello and
3: welcome uh, to this Intelligence Squared event with Sam McAllister. She is many things, notably a BAFTA-nominated interviews producer who worked on BBC Two's flagship news programme Newsnight from 2010 to 2021. Uh, There she negotiated head-to-head interviews with Silicon Valley CEOs, world leaders and Hollywood superstars and, of course, notably, led the negotiations for the groundbreaking interview with Prince Andrew, some might say the royal Breaking interview with Prince Andrew. (laughs) She's now written it all up in her new book, Scoops, behind the scenes of the BBC's most shocking interviews. Sam, nice to see you. Hello, my friend. Lovely to see you. Sam, we know where this all ends up by now. It ends up with a catastrophic interview with Prince Andrew, you leaving the BBC to pursue writing the book, Scoops. Uh, But where did it start? A lot of people will be wondering... Where you came from? (laughs) What created this creature?
0: (laughs) You know where I came from. I live up the street. Um, more 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 accurately i mean this is just one of those most extraordinary random situations where i was working as the interviews producer at bbc newsnight you kind of ferret away for months for years on kind of like bits and bobs most of it comes to nothing you have to be excellent with rejection and most of your days would start with like this raft of an inbox like the world's most frightening inbox with requests and demands and suggestions and uh, book releases Uh And then you'd fight like a bun fight to the death to try and get the content to make sure that it was on your program and a kind of death match between you and the Today program and Channel 4 News. Now, on this occasion, so bizarrely and randomly, one day an email just drops into my inbox. It was about a year before the interview happened. I think it was October of 2018. And it just says, "Oh, you know, hello, we work with Pitch at Palace, Prince Andrew's former charitable concern. Would you like to talk to him about his entrepreneurial kind of like work effectively? Um, And we'd never had any dealings with the palace. Newsnight traditionally had no royal interviews and no royal connections. So obviously I was like, "Hmm, that sounds interesting. So I wrote back and I said, well, very kind of you, but we don't do what we call puff pieces in the trade, which are those free adverts where you talk about how fantastic you are with no sort of journalistic kind of like measure or test. So I politely declined unless he was willing to do a wide-ranging news interview. Um, they said he wasn't, so I signed off with "Do get back to me if he changes his mind." Usually, that means naffle will ever happens again. On this
3: one miraculous occasion, I did hear back from them about six months later. And when you heard back from them, how was the tone of that? And why do you think they changed that tone? Why did they want Newsnight? That's what I find really interesting, because obviously,
0: traditionally, royal interviews, and no doubt they will always be like this for the rest of time after this interview, but traditionally, they're rather cosy affairs, aren't they? You kind of imagine, theoretically... Because this never happened to me that someone would ring and go, oh, is Emily free tomorrow? We've got an interview with the Queen. Never happens at Newsnight. But you kind of imagine they all kind of know one another. It's a little bit chummy. It's a little bit deferential. It's a little bit hierarchical. Um, So I'm not sure why the reason was Newsnight. But I do know that they were looking, if you like, to expand their wings by the looks of it in terms of the outlets that they were dealing with. And perhaps traditionally he'd been interviewed by men as well. So perhaps there was an interest in, you know, a programme where all the lead presenters at that stage were women. But I'll never truly know the answer to that. But um, I was not going to obviously refuse the invitation that arrived six months later to pop into Buckingham Palace to meet Amanda Thirsk, his
3: chief of staff. But it it seems like no one in the palace had ever watched (laughs) Newsnight, <laughs> that they they had no concept of what this programme was. You know, i not disparaging this morning, which I think is a great programme, great presenters – But it wasn't that, you know, everybody knows that that is not what Newsnight is. It's not going to be Philip Schofield asking you what your favourite colour is.
0: Well, having just appeared on This Morning This Morning, I can tell you, I wasn't asked what my favourite colour was, but we were talking about cat CPR, which I very much enjoyed. I have to say, my cat would lead me to die, as would yours. Um, (laughs) uh, What I would say is I think that actually, Petrie was the crux of what the negotiation was about, How do you convince from that starting point of them saying, pop in, we'd like to get to know you as a program, which is literally a prayer to nothing, right? It's a road to nowhere. Didn't even tell my editor at the time because I was so used to doing negotiations. You've mentioned it. They get excited and then it doesn't work out. And then you look like a loser. So I was always very careful not to over-promise and under-deliver. I preferred to under-promise and over-deliver. But I think that was the power of the negotiation. My negotiation point was this. It was very clear. If you're going to do something, which I feel was a critical point at some point, that if he didn't say anything, the whole country was assuming him guilty as sin. If you're going to do something... Don't even bother if you're going to do a soft puff interview with an interviewer who clearly is your mate who you play golf with, who's a bloke who you know, where they've agreed terms, because some people seem to, we don't, and it looks cosy. You might as well not bother. So it was a high stakes negotiation, but my point always was do a proper interview where the public watching know you're being held vigorously accountable, like Newsnight, or just don't talk at
3: all well i'm I suspect they wish that they'd chosen the other the other one. Uh, so what was the tone? You got this 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 email back. You'd said, "Get in touch if you change your mind." So what was the tone of that? Did that give you hope that this was going to open up to something?
0: Yeah, the tone was basically, I'd left the last email with you know obviously, we're a news program, and so the kinds of things we would be insistent upon asking about would be, for example, you know, Brexit remember that? Future of the monarchy, Harry and Meghan. So just to give them examples of how different their request was from what we would accept. So when they asked me to go back, they said basically that the palace was, or Amanda was open to a conversation to see whether there was any possibility of finding you know a way to do something with Newsnight, a way to collaborate. But it's so general, Petri, that as I said, I didn't even tell my boss. It felt like a sort of fishing sort of expedition that they wanted to see the cut of our jib, invite us in, and then I was ninety nine percent sure I would not be invited back because I was going to be extremely clear that unless it is no conditions, no issues, we're not doing a thing. And remember, this was before it got really sticky for Prince Andrew. Epstein was still alive. he hadn't been charged. Maxwell's at large. Virginia Roberts is bringing her cases, but they haven't really hit kind of like the civil courts at that stage. The coverage is a bit kind of like low. So he was kind of like a a one out of 10 in terms of peril. By the time, obviously, we were doing the latter negotiations, he was at 10 out of 10 on peril. So It felt like a road to nowhere, but it was a road to Buckingham Palace. So, of course, I duly obliged, packed my bag and went off to meet Amanda Thirsk on my own. I think that was in May. So before the interview happened in November.
3: So who do you think drove this this interview? Was it Prince Andrew himself or was it Amanda Thirsk advising him that this was what he should do?
0: I think it's very chicken and egg. Um, I mean, in truth, the advisor is a bit like a producer in a sense. You know, when everything goes well, then probably the attention will fall to the, to the boss, you know, the, the presenter or the member of the royal family. And when everything goes wrong, it's your neck in the line. So I felt we had almost that kind of understanding of one another. I do feel that basically, if you're working for someone like that, a CEO, you know, let alone a member of the royal family, unfettered, It's never going to be a situation that you're going to say, I'll tell you what, Prince Andrew, you really must do this interview. And he's going to go, oh, okay then. It must be the case that the driving force would have been from him. If he were in two minds, perhaps her opinion would have, you know, a weight on whether or not he said yes or no. But I can't believe for a second that I was in that room if there hadn't been a general interest from him to explore the idea of of an interview that wasn't the usual crew.
3: Is Amanda still in her job? No, no. Indeed, she's not. Of course, of course, she isn't. Another scalp. There you go. Um, so, okay. So you uh, turn up at the the palace. The other thing that that many of the public might believe to be the case, and I, I mean, I certainly did. But and I've been a journalist for you know one hundred and twenty years. But I would have I would have imagined that there would be a massive team of people around the Queen's favourite son, that there would be, you know, more than just one person advising him and there would be people there, you know, double-checking, throttle checking everything. But that wasn't the case, was it?
0: No, that's what I found really interesting about it. And I think I may have just by luck have entered the palace and entered his world, his realm, factually, in a, in a very sort of like heady moment where there didn't seem to be much oversight on them. Uh, the oversight was with Harry and Meghan. They were talking about leaving at that juncture. Amanda was there on her own. She was, I know people may say roll their eyes when I say this, but she was a hugely impressive woman, you know, superficially extremely high achieving. She was ex-City. Uh, we were bringing up children on our own for different reasons. I always research the people I'm meeting, number one rule of negotiation, of course. So she was bringing up some girls. Her husband had sadly died. I was bringing up my son on my own, as you know. So we had that in common. My background is criminal defense barrister briefly. Her background was high-flying city woman briefly. So we had that kind of commonality. But yes, it, it, it was surprising. The PRs were also there who'd introduced us, but they were largely silent for the two or three hours I was with her. And that was a really fascinating meeting because at the end of it, in the end, it didn't work out that time in May for reasons that we'll come to. But what it did is it was built that mutual respect, that mutual trust. And the way I negotiate is very plain speaking and very direct for better or worse. So we had by the end of that meeting a mutual respect and understanding that lasts to this day. We are still in touch
3: the the thing with you though sam is um it's not just about being plain speaking is it your diligent research on the people that you're going to meet means that if there isn't common ground you'll manufacture it uh, you will charm uh, and there's a lot about negotiation that that you can't write down that you can't say well this is how you negotiate because a lot of negotiation is that Charm, it is that finding that common ground. And I've seen you at work, just out and about with people. You will find very quickly something that makes them feel comfortable and them trust you. Yeah, it's I it's think not you're a right. hard. I mean, you are hard and fast. You're a no-nonsense woman. Well, you're pretty nonsensical sometimes, but <laughs> That's between oh, us. I'm
0: <laughs> nonsensical. Thank you very much. Yeah,
3: but but I know you know. But you do have that incredible charm that people really like you, and that's important. Thank you. That's really kind. I mean, if I have a superpower,
0: then then that would be it. You know, I genuinely I think the word genuine is hugely important. A lot of journalism and negotiation and dealing with people comes from a place of telling people what they want to hear. And closing deals with people on basically sometimes slightly uh, unfair or false premises. That is not my vibe. But quite separately, you're right. You know, I genuinely love people. I say in my book, my mum taught me to mix with princes and paupers, but didn't mean it literally. You know, you'll see me chatting to Reluca, who is the lovely young homeless woman at the end of my street. And you'll see me chatting to a billionaire and I treat them both the same pet, as you know. So I think that connection to other people is actually at the core of excellent negotiation, but it's a thing people don't like to talk about because it's perceived as unprofessional. So my ability to connect with people um, was, if you like, my million dollar proposition as a
3: producer, but that would be something most people would take for granted. Absolutely. And it isn't spoken about because it sounds, it does sound like it's showing off and also people like a formula. Don't they? They like to know, you know, if they if they add one and one, it'll equal the interview. It just doesn't work like that. It's like when you're actually interviewing somebody, you know, you don't stick to the normal rules. You try to get a connection, then you get more out of them. It's as simple as that.
0: A hundred percent. And for me, because because I think that that is also sometimes a professional gambit to create a connection in order to get good answers. But the added element for me was that that's just genuine. It's every interaction I have. So I feel that often people would feel reassured by the fact that they knew I wasn't fake, to be frank. So they felt comfortable with what I was saying because they knew that it came from a place of integrity rather than a place of just trying to
3: close the deal. So if you can, talk us through that time with Amanda at those those two or three hours. what What was the conversation? I mean, knowing you, it would have been a lot about... Stuff nothing to do with the interview, and then you would pull it back at the right time. But how, how did that all go?
0: Mm. I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, that's the thing. And negotiation is not about the terms; it's about the surrounding elements. And um, hopefully, this is the next book, the Rules of Negotiation. But you're absolutely right. That is one of the biggest rules. If if you go in and you just talk about what you're there to talk about, then you're going to be out of there very quickly because it makes you look utilitarian. You make no connection, and it doesn't show that you've thought about what the other person's experience of the negotiation is. So, absolutely, the first part of our conversation would have been me establishing a genuine connection, asking about her professional life. Um, it was clear from the room that we were in, which was very small, and the room in which we did the eventual negotiation further down the line with Prince Andrew himself. Uh, there were pictures everywhere of of him and his achievements, his you know family we're very close quarters. We're a couple of feet apart. And so I would say the first part would absolutely be just, you know, chit chat about this and that, obviously, at a relatively high level. Then you move, I would say, into the first part of a negotiation, which is then when you casually say, well, obviously, you know, we're here to talk about X. Can you tell me what you're thinking in your mind? Because the second mistake of negotiation is going in there and only looking for your own outcome. It's bleeding obvious what I want. I want an interview. So what's much more important is what does she want? So that would always be the first question I ask. What is it that you're looking for? So I understand, not saying I can give it to you, but I need to understand what's in your mind before I do that terrible thing that most people do, where they just throw the pitch out straight away. Well, this is what we can offer. She doesn't care what we can offer. I need to know what she wants before I respond to it. So then the next phase will be listening. A shocking tactic but one that's not used very often, frankly. So I would just sit and patiently listen. I never take notes because I think that makes people nervous. I never record a negotiation. I think that makes them jumpy too. And then, you know, once I'd heard what it was that they wanted to do, which was relatively similar to the first proposition and not very close at all to what I needed, which was a anything-we-want-to-ask interview about any news issue out there, you know, freedom of speech and all that jazz you know, then you know what the sweet spot is. You know where you have to aim. You know what the dance is between the two of you. And then that's the point at which having listened and understood, you're then able to formulate what your actual suggestion is in light of what they've said. And the actual suggestion at that stage may even be, well, I'm sorry, that's not going to work. In this occasion, it felt that there was some room for conversation. I managed to get onto the table asking him about Brexit, which at that point really was quite a coup. And then asking about Meghan and Harry, also a coup, the future of the monarchy, the prime minister. So I felt brilliant. This is going extremely well. But then we got to the end point of the conversation, which is where you say, oh, you know, is there anything else I can help with? I'm going back to the office. We'll discuss, you know, um, the possibility of this, the logistics, blah, blah, blah. We'll get back to you, all that generic stuff. And then she said, oh, there is one thing. And that is when your negotiation alarm bells just go ring, ring, ring. And you think, oh, no, what is the one thing? And, of course, the one thing at that stage, even though it wasn't in the news so much, was we don't want to talk about Jeffrey Epstein. That's a closed issue for us.
3: But, of course, that was the nail in the coffin for us doing, I mean, she might English as well point. have just written it written it on the on the wall because that is the. Then you suddenly go, oh, if we don't want to talk about it, that's the thing we want to talk about.
0: Well, at that stage, to be honest with you, Petri, I mean, it wasn't such. A, I mean, it sounds mad now, but it would have been something we would have asked. Of course, you know, obviously this unfortunate, but it, it wasn't in the news. It wasn't really sort of like this huge story, this cataclysmic tale at that point. So, question or two would have been asked, but it was possible that if we had done that interview and she hadn't set that red line down, we would have done a perfectly nice interview with him, Asked, got some news lines about Brexit and the future of the monarchy, asked him one or two questions about Jeffrey Epstein, game over. And then 10 weeks later or whenever it was that all of the shit, pardon my French, hit the fan with that story. We'd already done our interview, game over. So how lucky we were... Can't do it. And then we said, I mean, I went back to the office and of course you're like, oh, it's just, oh, wish, I hope she's going to change her mind. Of course she didn't. And so then, you know, obviously, the editor was like, we have to decline this absolutely 100% right. So all that hard work
3: seemingly goes into the ether and disappears. It's, um, it, again, with uh, with with negotiation, just just to, uh, you know, take you back a step. When you're negotiating, is it the case that you you take baby steps to the issue you want to talk about so you might say you know that oh are we you know we'd like to ask him about his charitable work and and then you ratchet it up so that there's there's a sense that you're you're welcoming somebody into a, into a, a kind of net that you're bringing them slowly into where you want them to be
0: yeah i think it depends on the person with someone like amanda because clearly she was so highly intelligent extremely you know gifted intellectually there's no elephant in the room with someone like that. You know, you're not dancing around something where you know perhaps they won't mention it because they might not have realised. Of course she knows that that is an issue for them. That is a big issue for them. So I I suspect we, we went, you know, though we didn't mention it during, it's not my obligation to raise anything with her. We don't give questions, a myth about journalism. We don't tell them what we're going to ask, of course. So... In my head, I'd looked at what his comment had been on Epstein in case she did raise it. And he would previously commented on Davos, you know, that very posh Swiss kind of meet where all the great and the good go. I know we've never been invited, but maybe one day, Petri, let's hold out. (laughs) Maybe one day our Davos will come. Um, But he'd spoken about it there. He'd been asked a question and he'd basically sort of fobbed it off and the journalists hadn't followed it up. And I felt that they yeah he felt he'd closed the door there. He felt that he'd he'd comment on it and that was that. And isn't that the beauty of being a member of the royal family that you think you can comment on something once and then you know the case is closed because I had that in the back of my head, and when it was raised, I said, well, obviously he's already spoken to it gave a little pretentious speech about freedom of the press and all that jazz, knew I wasn't really getting anywhere with it. It wasn't going to happen because she was a woman of steely resolve. But, you know, once it's been mentioned, you can't put it back into, into the bag. So I knew it would probably be mentioned at some stage, but I certainly wasn't going to be the person to raise it.
3: So you you then walk out of the, the palace. How did you... F- how did you feel when you walked out? I mean, it's an extraordinary place for you to be in the first place. Mm-hmm. And, and you touch on that in the book, which I love. Uh, I, I love that whole section in the book. But, it, you know, you're then going, I, I've, oh, my, what have I just done? Have I, totally. have I got this? It, it must really have been surreal. the most exciting feeling. It was. It was really surreal
0: because usually what happens is I would always try and do negotiations face-to-face, but usually, obviously, you're going to – some bank or some, you know, embassy, often impressive or beautiful, or a coffee shop as the case may be. BBC budget, very careful with money, always walk to my meetings. I think mean, I got a bus that day. Um, but you know, you would you would largely be doing that kind of faceless office or coffee shop negotiation to go and do a negotiation where you turn up, and I'd never been inside Buckingham Palace, and I doubt I will be again, let's be, let's be clear. Pretty sure they're not going to be giving me an OBE and lucky me that I'm not in the Tower of London. But arriving at those steel gates that you've walked past or gone past on the bus and never really thought about and going up to the guys with the semi-automatics, having your name, walking perilously, in my case, because as you know, I always wear ridiculously high heels, across that entire front of Buckingham Palace with all the tourists thinking, who the two is that rando? And of course, understandably, not knowing who I was because you know, I'm not anyone they would have known who existed. Luckily, and then walking in through that door and being shown into the waiting room on my own, where rather déclassé. What can I say? I f- forgive me anyone who's listening or watching. I may or may not. I can't confirm or deny that I took some selfies. I
3: can't confirm or deny it, but I haven't put them on Instagram, um, and I can't confirm or deny that I've seen any of them. <laughs>
0: Sources, sources claim. (laughs) Sources close. But it was a, you know, it was an amazing experience. Of course.
3: But walking, walking back, right? Because I always know when I've cracked a good interview, and the feeling is just, I got away with that. That's amazing. That's brilliant. When you were walking back, were you running through your head how you were going to announce this to your boss that you were going to say, "Look, I I think we've, I think we've got Prince Andrew."
0: Well, we'd never had a royal interview,
3: so it definitely was. I think
0: I think the process was quite short-lived, Petra, I've got to be honest. I got back to the office. I would have got the bus or the tube. I can't remember. Maybe I walked. And I, it was probably three minutes of excitement followed by the inevitable no. I mean, Emily would have been like, oh, that's exciting. Uh, my colleague next to me, Rebecca, who always sat next to me and was my cheerleader, would be like, that's amazing. And then obviously within Three minutes, you've told the editor there's a condition, you know she's gonna say no. But I enjoyed the three minutes. Yeah. Nice. Very
3: nice. <laughs> That's your three minutes. And you've you've been told no. How did that feel, having done all or were you just so used to that that ideal and you knew it was gonna happen anyway?
0: Yeah, I'm very used to no. I mean, the misfortune of the interview's producers, you have to be excellent with rejection. You do have to have a thick skin about it. It's a very hard job because you can work for two years and nothing comes of it. I remember actually, I just had an appraisal just before Prince Andrew eventually did say yes later in the year um, with my lovely uh, deputy editor. And we'd sat there rather awkwardly because I'd been put on trying to persuade US presidential candidates to come on the programme. To be frank, they've never heard of the programme. They've never heard of our presenters. They don't know who we are. We, we'll, As I used to say, we're we'll poo on the shoe to them. They don't know who we are. You know, it's impossible And I got literally nowhere with any of them other than maybe a response to an email for about six months. So we'd have this somewhat awkward appraisal where he'd very kindly gone, well, you know, obviously I know how brilliant you are, but it's it's been a bit of a barren six months. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm I'm sure something will come along soon, hopefully looking into the wistful future. Um, Of course, never imagining that it would be this. But the skill, of course, from that moment of spending time with Amanda and building that trust and building kind of like that mutual understanding is that as the story started to cataclysmically change for Prince Andrew, Epstein's arrested, Epstein's charged, Epstein's dead, Maxwell's arrested, Maxwell's charged. Virginia Roberts is doing interviews galore, the FBI are involved. I mean, it just becomes cataclysmic at every single increment, because you don't want to be harassing somebody or imposing on them. But every time the story changed... I'm back in touch with Amanda saying things are looking very tricky. sure you don't want to reconsider. The public wants to hear what Prince Andrew has to say on the record. Would you consider meeting me? And this merry dance of every few days, every time the story moved, me getting in touch with her and being politely declined over and over and over again goes on from May until October when miracle of miracles, suddenly she invites me back.
3: And when she invited you back, was there a sense of, of subdued panic about the rumours and the, the situation that Prince Andrew was in? Did you feel suddenly that, that the she was on the other foot, you know, that she wanted something more from you now?
0: I, I felt it had reached, and my negotiation point always was, that, you know, you reach a point of critical mass at which your silence is deafening. They'd sent out these little, you know, little tiny commentaries. You know, it's like three lines, you know, relentless interviews with all the alleged victims, this cataclysmic kind of like news thing rolling towards them. And they're still there giving out their three-line written statement. So the atmosphere had definitely changed. Of course, it felt even less likely that he would do an interview in one sense, but more likely that if he was going to do one, now was the moment because it was only going to get worse. So when I went back um, that time, um, I took Emily with me. I thought it would be hugely useful, obviously star power, but also in terms of the trust relationship for her to be able to speak to Emily directly rather than just to me. I'd never taken a presenter on a negotiation. It was my first time having someone with me, which obviously was unusual because I had to sort of be more careful perhaps in how I behaved, because I can be quite go big and go bold, as as you know. And the atmosphere was still exploratory at that stage. We got to the end of another two or three hours with with Amanda. And I asked a question I never ask, because I don't care who else they're talking to. It's a point of weakness to ask about that. I asked, so are you going to do an interview? Because, you know, by this stage we're many months in. Is this just for fun, basically? Is this japes? um, Or is this something real? And she said... Yes, I think we're going to do one, and then we were sort of scurried out. Emily and I, and I remember us looking at one another, and just you know, at that point, it became real for the first time, because prior to then, it could have just been that they wanted to bring us in, and you know, they 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 were talking to everybody. At that point, I knew that we had a palpable and possible interview, because she would not have said that unless it was true. She was
3: not that kind of person. Do you think, Sam, that? Like you said, there's the hard negotiation and there's the soft negotiation and, there's, and, and, and what you do in keeping in touch with her and touching base with her. And knowing you, there would have been some some friendly exchanges as well. It wouldn't have been all business. Do you think that Newsnight would have got the interview if you hadn't built that relationship, that sort of soft negotiation that you carried out? Well, look, I mean, I I would
0: say that, wouldn't I, given that obviously it's about me in a sense. But uh, to be fair, it's impossible to know. But of course, I do feel that that relationship of trust gave us such a huge advantage because I don't know who she was speaking to, but the fact that we built that relationship of trust, um, she's always talked about to this day, my integrity and how fair I was. Can you imagine? Just take just one second imagine that a woman whose life was basically, some people may say rightly, but professionally ruined by having met me because I was the person she met first, that she is so magnanimous and so fair that she still wishes me the best. Now, what greater measure could there be of her generosity of spirit and her adultness, but also a measure of the bond, the professional bond and the personal bond that we made? And I think that that foundation was absolutely crucial um, in making sure that the interview happened. And, of course, the brilliant assistance of Emily and then latterly the deputy editor, Stuart McLean, who's now the editor there, was you know hugely, hugely helpful and important. But without the foundation, there is no
3: house. Let's move uh, swiftly now to the actual interview because we're we're running out. Can you believe it? We're running out of time. I know you and I can talk for years, but let's take, let's go now. Let's skip all the negotiations in between and all of the work that would have gone on. And uh, I know that that would have been you know an enormous number of emails and setting up the cameras and all of that kind of thing. We'll go straight to now the actual interview itself. So on the day you turn up with the crew and with Emily, talk me through that.
0: Yeah, what's so interesting about it is we're like scattered elements as the team on a day because the first people to turn up at the camera crews. it takes about two hours to get all of that television magic, the lighting, the sound engineer, all of those cables. It's a huge room. You see about 5% of the room. Nightmare. The lighting was a nightmare. The sound was a nightmare. We couldn't bring all of our stuff because there were security issues. You name it, every problem. So they'd been there about an hour and a half. I always turned up super early to anything I was working on, because to be frank, I always say I'm an experienced billionaire. I mean, you know, how many times are you going to get to go and do that? So I think I was about 45 minutes early um, from when the interview was going to start. So as luck would have it, Prince Andrew ambled into the room. Um, Emily wasn't there at that juncture. As you know, presenters tend to arrive at the last moment for a really good practical reason, which is you don't want your interviewee to corner you and ask you a load of tricky questions. So absolutely correct that she wasn't there. But it meant we then just had like a casual little chat about, you know, the weather, how British, about the cinema club that was going to be there that evening. It was going to be Judy with René Zellweger. We had a chat about René Zellweger and the projector, which he kindly got out from behind a wall. I mean, this is really bonkers surreal at this stage. You know, Prince Andrew's clambering up a wall, pulling out a projector, you know, you're just kind of like, how did this happen? But, you know, fascinating because that's the experience billionaire, isn't it? That conversation actually was the thing that for me, if you like, was the most interesting part of my day, aside from the incredibly cataclysmic interview, because that's the thing that you'll always remember. So, yeah, chatting with him. And then Emily arrived. And then about 10 minutes later, we we
3: sat down the Bums were on the seats. Now you would have expected, again, uh, a team of people. Uh, I know that whenever I've interviewed anybody of importance, they've already got, they've always got somebody recording it, so you don't edit it in the wrong way. Um, there's always somebody taking notes. There's people, people around. But he brought somebody with him that was you thought was unusual. Oh, no, that was to the meeting, wasn't it? It was his daughter. That was daughter. The meeting, yes. Yeah. He
0: brought Princess Beatrice to the final negotiation, yeah. which was definitely, definitely unusual and really threw a spammer in the works. But on that day, what was unusual, actually, Petrie was how few people there were. Amanda was there and someone junior to her, I think a couple of interns, not entirely sure who all the protagonists were. At one stage, somebody else turned up. That's become somewhat contentious, so I'll be a bit careful about what I say about that. But someone who worked for the Queen arrived and then may or may not have left. It's unclear according to the current briefings about that. So I didn't see him again, but he may have been in the room and I didn't notice. But really, I was expecting the cavalry. I expected to turn up to a very angry lawyer who he or she would be looking like they wanted to basically take me outside and skin me. I expected some other head of communications who was probably you know, angry that this was happening. Yeah, that's standing next to me with some kind of recorder, exactly taking pictures of me, taking pictures of Amanda, taking pictures of Stuart, standing next to Emily, kind of like giving her a sort of, you know, sort of slightly intimidating vibe. That's what I expected, but
2: that is not what happened. Extraordinary. Extraordinary. Hi everyone, it's Connor Boyle here. If you don't already know, we've launched Intelligence Squared Premium. It's an exciting new way to take your Intelligence Squared experience to the next level so you can make the most informed decisions about the issues that matter in the company of the world's greatest minds and speakers. Crucially, it lets us produce even more amazing podcasts for you, as well as running some more live events and big debates. This is now available on all podcast players, including Spotify, for just $4.99 a month. Sign up now at iq2premium.supercast.com. Dot .com that's IQ the numeral 2 premium.supercast.com dot dot or see the link in the description thank you for all your support of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool and I love the dance piece Sutra inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks and we've got a special treat for our listeners Marquee TV offers 3 months of access for just 99 cents that's right 3 months for only 99 cents with the code squared simply visit Marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with Marquee TV
3: So you are I, I may or may not have seen a photograph of you on that day, but you were you were you were not far. You were not far from obviously the action. You're the producer of this interview. Emily briefed and researched, okay. So she was sitting there, he was sitting there, just the two of them, and the interview starts. How long was it before you realised that this was explosive? This was this was other. This was something else.
0: Well, absolutely. I mean, I should clarify that the exec on, the, on this interview was Stuart McLean, who's now the editor. So he was the overlord at that stage, because you bring the baby, if you like, to the party, and then somebody takes over looking after it. And Jake Morris was also there, a producer who'd been working on the investigations, if you like, to be able to provide Emily with those calm, methodical questions. So I was not the only producer in the room. I was 15 feet behind him. And I could only see the back of him. So all I could see were the physical manifestations of what he was saying, coupled with the words, some of which we'd heard in that last negotiation on the Monday. The yes was on the Tuesday. The interview was on the Thursday. So sort of, you know, not that many hours later. And I was expecting a very different interview from the interview that happened because I assumed he would have been, you know, kind of like coached within an inch of his life
3: to basically not say much. Yeah. You know, to apologize. that political answer, that kind of political, you know, run run down the tape, run run, you yeah. know, keep talking. All you need to do is the
0: simple thing is you turn up, the first thing you say is, you know, I'm so sorry that this happened. Terrible crimes that this man has committed. I deeply regret my friendship with him. I wouldn't even call it a friendship. You know, I barely knew him. That's that's the thrust of what you want to say here. And as we know, none of the answers gave us that basic message, which was, this was a terrible mistake, and I am terribly, terribly sorry. And as every minute continued, and every answer came, and we got further and further away from that simple proposition of what the interview should have been, a heartfelt apology, I knew
3: how terrible it was for him. I mean, it really w- was terrible for him. As the person that put him in that seat, how did you feel? Because you're not a bad person. You would have felt, you would have known what this would have done to him.
0: Yes, I. That's. it's an interesting one, that, isn't it? Because you feel, obviously, human empathy in the sense that he has done something that you know is going to be extremely disadvantageous to him. But as to your question, did I feel bad? No, because his answers and his behavior, alleged uh, or unalleged, as the case may be, were what put him in that situation. So he is the opposite of, say, for example, an interviewee whose child has died in tragic circumstances or who finds themselves, you know, falsely arrested or some terrible thing has happened to. He was the polar opposite. His answers were his responsibility. He's a big grown up man with every privilege and every opportunity for advice and support. And his answers were what did it for him, and they were his responsibility and his responsibility alone. So although you obviously feel, God, you know, poor bloke hasn't realised how badly this has gone, there wasn't a feeling that I had of of guilt about that because that was entirely self-inflicted. You know, he gave Emily a sort of 20-minute tour of the palace. I didn't go, because you know what I'm like. If he'd asked me how it went... I wouldn't be able to lie to him. I'm I'm not good at that. It's the job of the presenter, as you know, to keep things more formal, more distant. So it's not so tricky to, if he says, how did it go? You can go, well, you know, very interesting chat, sir. I'm not that kind of person. I I knew I would mess it up. So I steered clear. But that was like a 20-minute tour. And those famous pictures of the two of them striding together, they were taken after that interview had taken
3: place, which is an extraordinary thought. That is extraordinary. Before we get to the questions, which we will in in a moment, could you have foreseen that this would really finish him off as a royal? It's interesting that, because Emily says she didn't realise um, how bad it was
0: until the edit. Well, I can tell you, Petri, I realised straight away how bad it was. My two brains, journalist in news, cataclysmic, and my other brain, uh, criminal defence barrister, a long time ago, but the the training still stands. He was so, so, so done for by that interview. You knew what the news lines would be, sweaty, pizza, all of that jazz. And you knew if you were a prosecutor, looking at that interview, it was a dream come true. Because whether or not the things he was saying were true or not, which I don't know the answer to, they were easy to disprove. And if you were running a multi-million pound, you know, litigation against somebody of his standing, that was a gold mine. So I knew he was in double whammy trouble as a news journal and as a lawyer. I knew it was cataclysmic, but I didn't realize quite how much it would profoundly affect him and how quickly he would effectively step back from public life. Do you get pizzas thrown at you now everywhere you go? They were really, they were really peed off with me. I have to be honest. It's taken me two years. So Pizza Express, I don't know whether you saw, but after that happened and it became part of our lexicon, I mean, Anne and Deck mentioned it. I mean, I've really made it at that stage. Pizza Express, the the Twitter account is something like, oh, you walk away from your computer for 10 minutes um, on the night that it happened. And then I have to say, no free dough balls. I want you to know that my integrity is intact um, and I'm not sure that I am their most popular person, but Peter Express, I love you.
3: Yeah, <laughs> Sam McAllister, thank you. Right, we've got so many, we've got questions coming in. So um, let's start. This one is from uh, Stella in Wilsdon Green. Uh, Do you think Prince Andrew should be given any credit for just being himself in the interview, however crassly he came across? He didn't, you know, he told his, his truth, as they now say.
0: 100% I think that's a really great point. And it's one of the things I say in the book, this was an incredibly unusual interview because of his frankness. I mean, imagine a politician doing that. Imagine if you sat down, a minister, and you said, oh, this energy crisis, how it's going. And they went, oh, well, basically, we haven't got a clue what to do. It's a total disaster. You're going to have to choose between energy and eating. Good luck to you. Left the set, dropped the mic. I mean, he laid it all out there and he was extremely frank as we know, it had cataclysmic results. But I completely agree with you. How unusual to turn on an interview and see somebody actually being frank. We're so used to the opposite that this was, at least in that sense, refreshing.
3: But was that due to arrogance or stupidity
0: or honesty? Well, I call it the royal delusion because I'm used to talking to people in power and... The problem about being a person in power and why many of our politicians, I believe, are out of touch despite having been nice people or still being nice people in some way at some juncture is you have so much smoke blown up you and people tell you you're amazing and no one ever tells you that you're wrong. And now times that by 100,000, favourite son of the Queen, live in a palace, never had a knockback for a job, never lived on the breadline, never had an appraisal. None of the normal things that rein you in in terms of your ego, ever happened to Prince Andrew. So I call it the royal delusion. The disparity between what he thought he was capable of, having been told he was amazing, 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 and what he was actually capable of was obviously writ large
3: in that interview. The next question. Uh, Thank you for this talk. Which of the great names that you booked would you most like to go out for a drink with? And that's from Malik, because of course your book, Scoops, Actually, there's so many other interviews within it that are brilliant, equally brilliant stories. Which one would you, I'm guessing it's not Assange, but which one would you want to go out with? So so for the
0: uninitiated who haven't read the book, the choices that we have are basically the two poor women that were incarcerated by the monster Ariel Castro. The daughter of um, Rudolf Hoss, who I don't think goes out to drink very much. Julian Assange, who you're right, I didn't particularly bond with. His limp handshake killed me. And then on the other end, we've got Steven Seagal, who walked off set. Then we've got uh, Sean Spicer, who hates us. James Comey, who seems very nice, but quite serious. So my answer would definitely be, drum roll, Stormy Daniels. Loved her, brilliant interviewee, because as per Stella's point, honest. Listened to questions, gave honest answers... Look like she's a lot of fun. I bet she's got some good tales. So Stormy, if you're watching, available. Drinks on me. Uh, Right,
3: another question now from uh, Jemima. says, do you think that the BBC's output is fundamentally biased? And if it is, is this necessarily a bad thing? I think the the joy
0: or the horror of working at the BBC is everybody, it's like almost 50-50, Everyone thinks we're too pro-conservative, then everybody else thinks we're too pro-Labour. You know, you're too pro-Israel, you're too anti-Israel. It's quite hard to tell when you're in there, really, you know, how the pendulum swings. I think if you're getting a healthy amount of criticism on both sides, that's probably a good thing. But I do worry about the connection between the organisation and the country, because we are the British Broadcasting Corporation, and we should be accountable to the license fee payers. I, I do think that there is a disconnect between the way that sometimes the BBC sees the country and how the country is, and a lot of that I think comes from a lack of direct experience. So,
3: but also I there is a hiring issue in the real world. There is a hiring issue that they hire in their own image, and and that that London centric bubble sometimes is glaringly obvious that that a, that what will lead the news bulletin for example is not what's in people's lives or minds that they they choose stories sometimes that you go well nobody cares about that why, why are you why are you doing that story definitely.
0: i think the nobody cares test is actually hugely important and i probably made myself quite unpopular towards the end of my career if not throughout by having what i would call the nobody cares test you know, that is not what the average person on the street is talking about nobody cares about your in the bubble Westminster piece of gossip about how this undersecretary of something said this thing in in uh, uh, something in the New Statesman or the Spectator and um, that some other commentary nobody cares people have got children to feed they've got kids to educate they've got energy bills to pay and I think that that diversity of opinion, has reduced over the years that I was working there, I would say. And my concern was that the average BBC journalist might be spending too much time getting their opinions from others in the same group of thoughts in the same world. And they're very nice and decent people and lots of them extremely hardworking and gifted. But that disconnect between what I would call the BBC world the world of journalism—it's not just the BBC and the real world. To put it crudely, I think is problematic.
3: Okay, do you think producers working in television and radio are underrated? And that's from Sally. I can answer that and say not by some presenters, but by most.
0: Hello, Sally, new best friend. <laughs> well, what's so interesting, Petra? Isn't it? It's like when somebody does, for example, Lee's do set at the BBC is really excellent. Um, as a BBC example, of always adding in her producers when she does an item. And people just kind of like hero worship her for that. Now, I think it's wonderful that Lees does it. But isn't that a strange thing, in a sense, that somebody gets a load of credit for mentioning the other people who actually did work? And I think there's a problem in the industry, which manifested itself with a speech I did at an award I was lucky enough to get for the Women Film and Television Awards with Emily, where I talked about Producers basically being undervalued and kind of like pretended that they don't exist. And the industry's created a dynamic in which credit is given in some quarters and not others. And I don't think that's good for the industry. I don't think it's good for producers. You can't really say, well, this is what I did because no one knows, because it's not talked about. And I think it's bad for public trust because if you don't really understand how things come about, then how can you understand that journalism is fair or unfair or is, you know, opaque or clear? So I think producers do deserve more attention and value given to them. And I hope my book is a tiny little bit because I've received hundreds of messages from producers all around the world thanking me for giving them a bit of a voice so I, I hope it's helpful on that front.
3: Yeah, and just to, for presenters as well, they can't do the job without them, and I don't know why they seem to think that they're better than that, but hey, there you go. Uh, right, Ant has sent a message. Uh, what are your top tips for anyone whose job it is to persuade people to do things? Ant hasn't said what things, uh, but uh, what, what is your top tip? My top tip, first of all, is a very basic one which is your first
0: impression is everything. So if you're negotiating with somebody, whether it's on the phone or whether it's by an email, make sure you triple check how to spell their name. Make sure you don't mix your fonts. Do not use a generic email. Make sure that you use the right pronouns. Uh, nowadays, that's particularly contentious, but I mean, I meant previously he or she, but you know, whatever the pronoun is, make sure you get the pronoun right. Make sure you do a modicum of research. So you can drop something into your email Or your conversation that shows that this is not a generic call. The generic negotiation is the enemy of excellence. And one of the reasons I was lucky to succeed research is everything. You might not have time to do a couple of hours like I sometimes would, sometimes I'd only have five minutes, but check their LinkedIn. Google them, press news, see if there's anything about them, and then go to their Twitter feed and look at the last 15 tweets and drop in some personal information. So I think those are the first two things. Get the basics right, do something that's bespoke. The third one is, and I hope I can use this word in, in company, um, don't be an asshole. Really, that is the crux of everything that I recommend. You know, don't be smart ass, listen, be polite. If you don't get the Negotiation, if you don't get it, ask why not politely, not with like a barb. And maybe you can change. Maybe you can change their mind in the future. Make sure you get proper feedback. Always say thank you. Be on time. So not being an arsehole, I think, is crucial to the whole negotiation process and treating people with dignity and respect and remembering it's a long game. They might say no today. So leave a good impression just in case there's a possibility of saying yes
3: tomorrow. Yeah, so leave the door open, in other words. Always. Right. Um, do you feel you were not given credit that you deserved by Newsnight and Emily? <laughs> Look, it's,
0: it's a tricky thing, credit, I think, because obviously there are a number of people on the team and all of them worked extremely hard and I'm just one part of that. Obviously, there's a point at which there are opportunities that came my way. And for people who've read the book, they will know, for example. And I don't say this with any side. It's just a fact. You might expect, for example, that somebody would get a pay increase or something like that. um, Or, you know, something, a bonus or something if, if they did something like that. And that's not how the BBC works. So there's a stage at which you have to have an honest conversation with yourself and say, this was something huge that I was a part of. And that frankly, you know, I wanted to have the opportunity to tell my tale about it. And it was clear from conversations I had privately that I wasn't going to be allowed to write a book if I wanted to. So I had to make a decision. So I pulled on my big girl pants and I took a risk on me. I wrote the book and and, and I left. I, I wish it had been different and that, you know, I could still be there and have written the book and all of that jazz. But the system is not set up to give credit to producers, and so I'm just trying to do a little bit. It's no shade on Emily or the BBC. That's
3: just how it is. I'm just trying to do my little bit to change that a little bit. Um, OK, how hard did the palace try to get the interview cancelled before it aired? Here is the most shocking part of all.
0: not one jot. Take that in for a second. I was expecting the machinations of the establishment, which I believe they call it, but I know it's out there somewhere. I I don't seem to be part of it. Um, I was expecting phone calls, lawyers. You know, I would have faked my own death in that interview to make it stop if I was Amanda or indeed Prince Andrew. Um, I really would have done anything. I would have set the place on fire. Um, Absolutely nothing. Now, isn't that astonishing? I mean, I know they say the palaces, you know, never complain, never explain. Uh, But on this one occasion... You, you would have thought that they would have done something. Uh, and they unbelievably impressively, uh, once it
3: was done, that was that. But truly, really, uh, you know, the, the Prince Andrew may have thought it went well, but other people must have thought that this was a disaster. Too late, though. It's all on camera. I mean, if you think about the repercussions
0: of trying to do something about it, that would make the story even bigger. So take a cataclysmic interview and then take phone call to the DG, BBC puts out 45 minutes anyway, and then we do a separate two-way with Emily talking about how we were approached by, you know, this law firm and this individual, and then we got a sinister phone call. and
3: makes it even worse. So I think... <laughs> even worse. I can't imagine anything worse, but it was. Oh, um, please, listen, please. we've got about a minute and a half left. Uh, so what's next for you, Well, I'm hugely lucky. I'd never written a
0: book before. Um, I'd written a legal opinion, but they weren't very good, I would have thought, for reading. Um, But my book's been optioned to be made into a film. So I do speaking and I advise companies on how not to do a Prince Andrew, to be frank, or how to convince brackets of Prince. Uh, But I'm also currently working on a screenplay with Peter Moffat, who has won a zillion Emmys and was just working with Brian Cranston. And now he's stuck with Sam McAllister. Poor man, I can only apologize. So I'm hugely fortunate to have these opportunities and, I, and I'm very grateful um,
3: that I made the decision that I did. Fantastic. Look, it's been amazing talking to you. Um, really, really interesting every time, even though I've known you for donkeys, but it's still always amazing that we were grown up enough to do an interview there.
0: Yeah, get us. And thank you for everybody who sat through it. And we didn't even swear. Did we swear? I did
1: say You did say
3: oh, did. I didn't. Sorry, guys. Oh, yeah, Sorry, I guys. didn't. You were great. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Sam.
2: Thanks for listening to today's episode. Just a reminder, you can support intelligence squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for intelligence squared premium for more information, go to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description. Thank you for your support. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the
1: supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute.